0: and welcome to Lunching with Lawyers. Lunching with Lawyers is brought to you by LorettaCrete.com. In this series of podcasts, Loretta explores the world of law graduates. She talks to lawyers, recent law graduates and budding lawyers, seeking alternatives or exploring how to get the jobs that they want. This podcast series is also for those thinking about pivoting or just wanting to do something different. So join Loretta for discussions with lawyers and law graduates about their careers and the paths they took to get to where they are. Let's explore what success in their profession looks like to them.
1: Today I'm very happy to be speaking to Professor Frank Garcia. Professor Frank Garcia joined the Boston College Law Faculty in 2001. Before that, he'd been the Associate Professor at Florida State University College of Law since 1993. He served as a visiting professor at a number of schools around around the world. How exciting, including the University of Paris. How romantic. The University of New South Wales in Sydney, possibly not so romantic, the University of the Republic of, in Uruguay, possibly dangerous, at the University of Houston Law Centre, and as the Catherine A. Ryan Distinguished Visiting Professor at the St Mary's University School of Law, probably better known as the University of Innsbruck in Austria. He's the author of many books and articles in international economic law and economic justice theory. Hello, Professor. Hello. Thank you for agreeing to speak to me about where your law degree has taken you. I'm also here with Justin Melbourne, associate, no, adjunct professor at Griffith Law School, and in Brisbane, uh, who's going to be helping me with some of the quest- some of the questioning of Professor. Garcia. Yeah, we've got to be in a corner. We've got to get this guy. We're going to cross-examine him. We're going to get the truth out of him.
2: This is, this is good cop, bad cop. Yeah.
1: So we're going to start straight away at the beginning. Well, if your law degree is taking you all over the world, why is it taken you to Brisbane in the winter, in a beautiful winter's day here in, in Brisbane today? Well,
3: um, so the things I like to teach and write about the most have to do with uh, globalisation Uh, development and uh, what's going on internationally around issues of economic law and justice. Uh, And it turns out that uh, Queensland uh, has one of the most multicultural postgraduate programs of any school I've worked with. So for example this year I've got 17 students in my class uh, which is a course on international law and development uh, and it's part of their uh, LLM on international law. And in those 17 students, there are 11 different countries represented and, and not just Asian countries. I've got students from Turkey, from Egypt, uh, as well as Indonesia, China, Vietnam, uh, Denmark, Spain. So the chance to talk about these kinds of questions with that kind of audience uh, and those kinds of students, that's what brings me back here.
1: Oh, Wonderful. Um, uh, you know, I mean, at least they all, all can speak English. Yes,
3: <laughs> yes, which is a very lucky thing that globalization mm. happened while English was the language of the world because mm. otherwise I'd be in trouble.
1: I think we'd all be in trouble. Yeah. That's one of the things that I find really interesting when visiting Europe, really. You, you're so amazed at people speaking four or five different languages. Yes. And we're so arrogant in some ways as English speakers because yes. we rarely learn a language other than English and even if we do we never learn it to the fluency that um, people from other countries will learn English. No,
3: no we're lucky that way and I I heard an interesting fact uh, maybe 10 years ago when I was doing this kind of thing earlier people were wondering whether Mandarin would become the next Mm -hmm. language of globalization Uh, but the Chinese have decided to, to learn English and in fact in a few years China will be the number one English speaking language in the world Wow. Which is amazing.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, Frank, uh, you're, a, you're a globalization guy, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, yes. And I guess going back at least a decade, the assumption was we're inevitably, you know, with the internet and all the rest of it, travel, etc., the world is inevitably going toward a much more global space. Yes. And you're in that space. Yes. But now you're seeing the very strong currents against that so what what do you make of this world where there's I guess an anti globalization ethic setting in
3: yeah it's a great it's a great question it's a difficult issue I I think um, I'll give you the short answer which is I think I think globalization has been very badly mismanaged Mm -hmm. and uh, in particular the global financial crisis and I was reading a commentator uh, recently uh, from the Uh, I forget, an English literary review, Uh, and he was making the case I thought quite persuasively that uh, there was so much popular resentment about the way the global financial crisis ended up with really no one of any significance going to jail, um, no really significant fines, that uh, it, just fueled, it just fueled that sense that globalization was being driven for the benefit of a few uh, at great cost to the many and we've inherited that kind of populist uh, politics that comes from that. So I think it's a reaction against a particular form of globalization.
2: Maybe, maybe it'll lead to a better form. I don't know. So, do you, so so. is globalization still inevitable but it needs to be fixed up and this is a crisis well, is, you know, is globalisation going to get shut down or is it inevitable? But this is a wake-up call to say uh, it's not as pretty as you first imagined. There's yeah. lots of problems with it. Uh, and so really the onus of people like you and others yeah. uh, have, have to say, look, uh, this is a soul-searching time. We've got to see what the faults are and how to fix them up.
3: That's the way I would lean. Uh, I think someone like Joseph Stiglitz really is one of the foremost spokespeople for that view that, that yeah, this is a good time for soul searching. Mm. We definitely got it wrong, uh, but there's still a lot of potential there. So let's take advantage of this. You know, Don't waste a good crisis let's yeah. see if we can't get it get it better.
2: Actually, I've got a theory. <laughs> That's uh, got a theory. <laughs> i got a theory, I've got a theory, and that is, uh, you know, this free trade. Mm which is that members of the World Trade Organisation can't impose uh, tariffs higher than they would otherwise Mm -hmm. impose, uh, which to me is enforcing compelling countries, which most of the world is a member of the WTO, forcing them into a situation that if there's exploitation in the production of goods they are barred under World Trade Organization rules from doing anything about it. For Mm -hmm. example, if your T-shirt is made by Bangladeshi Mm -hmm. children Mm -hmm. uh, in exploitative conditions, which makes that product cheaper, Mm -hmm. uh, you can't impose a tariff when it comes into that country saying, hang on, in making this, you exploited people, you exploited the environment, which is a cost, which is Mm externalised from the price of that T-shirt. yes. Okay, so our system locks in our beautiful World Trade Organization system locks in exploitation and bars any country from trying to reform that.
3: Yeah, well, I think I think at the level of the way the rules are written, I think that would make sense. Mm. But I think I think we're waiting for the right case because I think there are a couple of exceptions in the WTO that none of them are really quite aimed at uh, exploitative child labor or human rights violations. But a couple of them could be interpreted that way. Uh, and I think we're waiting for the right case in the sense that uh, a major country to say, we think this is uh, exploitatively produced product. We're gonna go ahead and add a tariff on it or ban it outright, and we're gonna invoke a certain provision that might not say human rights on its face, but could, could plausibly be read that way. And then let the other country challenge it and a lot of these countries are not going to challenge it because they don't want the scrutiny on their labor practices Uh, so in fact i think that we're just waiting for the right case and i think that could evolve in that direction but that depends on the appellate body living Mm -hmm. past december of this year which unfortunately is difficult question. So
1: is that the focus of your work at the Boston College of Law? Globalisation? Yeah it's one
3: part Mm. of it. It's really it's globalisation and how it relates to law and how it relates to global justice. Mm. That's really sort of the triad and I think with developing countries right in the middle of that.
1: Because it's interesting in Australia when we think about the College of Law we think about our practical legal training. Yes, yes, of course, of course. mm, So it's different in the States in that way. Well, we
3: have a certain amount of latitude. I mean, we Mm. do, we are a professional school and every Mm. law school that's serious about law treats, considers itself a professional Mm. school. So you have to offer students the best possible professional training that you can. Uh, But we do take seriously the tradition of, you might say, American legal realism that says Mm. the law has to be understood in its context, its social and economic context. And once you start to do that, then really you have to get into these messy questions because they're right under the surface of these rules. So we're given a lot of latitude to look into that.
1: And I was going to ask you because I noticed that you did a BA in religious studies. So how did you get from that to studying law?
3: Ah, Well, that's an interesting Mm. question. it's really, you might say I'm the accidental lawyer. You know, I'm a, I'm a great illustration of the fact that you can think you're planning towards something else but you can't really say where you're gonna end up. Uh, I had actually been thinking early in my life of going into the ministry, uh, but I was Catholic and then I fell in love and got married. So that was kind of a bad career move and it's like, it took me a while to really fully understand that mm, I don't think that priesthood thing's gonna work out. So I really was casting about for other possibilities. Um, was the manager of a pizzeria for a while, uh, which I enjoyed very much. Uh, and um, and then uh, again with this sort of unexpected bends in the road, I was actually um, away in basic training for the United States Army National Guard. And my friends had a meeting, and they said, "What are we going to do with Frank?" And they said, "Well, we think he'd be a good lawyer." And <laughs> so my, we were almost already married. My wife said, "Well, will talk to him when he gets back." So I came back from basic training and said, well, Frank, we, we, what do you think about law? And I said, well, I'd, I'd never really thought about it. And they and said, well, we think you'd be a good, a good lawyer. I said, okay, well, that's interesting. I said, well, well glad- why did they think you would be a good lawyer? <clears throat> um, I think the, the, the analytical mind, tendency to argue first and think second. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and so, in fact, uh, that's how it started. So that's how really how I ended up in law school was mm-hmm. uh, uh, good advice from my friends and my partner.
1: And how do you think, though, that BA in religious studies has influenced the way that you've practiced law or the way that you've used that law degree?
3: Well, oh, I think it definitely has. Mm. I think it, um, it, it, it didn't steer me towards issues of religion in the law. Mm, I mean, it no. could certainly have done that yeah. for someone else. Uh, but for me, it, it, it gave me a, a natural orientation towards this question of justice. Uh, what's going on in terms of power And human well-being: Are people uh, flourishing from certain laws or not? And in that sense, it's absolutely a a part of what I do. But it isn't explicitly religious in in that sense. It's really more about um, sort of fundamental questions of human well-being and fairness that I think I I think are at the heart of law, but are easily overlooked. And and, and I try to make it at the center of what I look Mm.
1: at. I think that Catholic background, you know, is, is a really good moral basis. You know, it gives you a good sense of morality, yes. also a lot of guilt. <laughs> yes.
3: Yes. Yes. Well, that's uh, it's a complicated inheritance when you're a Catholic.
1: <laughs> I would say that. So what made you, uh, look, I know that you've gone to the University, university of Michigan to do yes. your law degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that law school because yes. I'm a huge fan of the Jordan Harbinger podcast and yes. that's where he went to law school but what made you choose that it's a very good university as yes. I understand it in the state so what made you go there or how did you get there
3: you know it's one of those intangibles you um you look you try to get a sense for the culture or the tradition of a, of a school and it's not a perfect process because you're often working with materials that may well be influenced by someone's marketing strategies mm-hmm. and where schools represent themselves in certain ways that it may or may not turn out to be true. Uh, but there was something about the way Michigan came through and uh, what some of the professors were doing uh, that just run a certain chord with me. Uh, that, and it, I think it did turn out to be a really good fit for me. Uh, it mm-hmm. was, um, I think they had a, a, a great sense of the, the, the best traditions of law they had been heavily involved internationally for many many years before it was popular to do that and I think it's also fair to say that they had a sort of liberal arts view of law uh, that it, it engaged all the fundamental human questions uh, and I thought that was very interesting so it was a good fit.
2: And would it be true to say that in America it's in the United States it's more likely that students go to a university outside their hometown? Yes, yes. So they're much more mobile in much terms more of their mobile. choice of Yes, university.
3: Uh, and uh, while it's still true that you can have some advantages when you get to the point of practicing law, if you've gone to a school that's known within that jurisdiction, Uh, if you go to a good enough school, it doesn't matter. So yeah, so it's sort of a national market for legal education, and then to some extent a national market for practice as well.
1: So um, when you graduated from the University of Michigan, what was your first job?
3: Well, I worked as a a business lawyer in a large uh, law Mm -hmm. firm in Oregon, Uh, and that was driven largely by um, geography. Uh, I had fallen in love with the state of Oregon in college, and I thought it was a wonderful place. The Pacific Northwest Mm -hmm. was a a great place to live, a wonderful part of the United States. Uh, And and I had this ideal of the lawyer as a a member of the community, you know, someone Mm -hmm. who's volunteering for nonprofit organizations, that's working on different kinds of commissions basically that's someone like Justin and doing all the things that, that Justin's doing uh, and um, so it was in that spirit and then I also had a, a, a course on corporate law from a professor uh, that I loved and love to this day Joseph Bining uh, that got me completely inspired about the fundamental issues in corporate law. Now I, found out I that,
1: find that really surprising. It's sort of like somebody being excited about tax law. <laughs> well, yes, it is
3: surprising. But that was that was something he had a gift for that. But what I did find out was that the practice of corporate law in a major law firm had very little to do with the fundamental issues in corporate law that he was really good at illustrating. Uh, and so that was a frustration to me. Like, that, um, like what? Well, that um, like one of his big. Uh, points was about the relationship between uh, control and profit and risk, and that all business law uh, is situated on in that triangle between control and profit and risk, and that uh, business actors are trying to gain maximum control and maximum profit and externalize risk, right. and that it's the job of law uh, and uh, legal regulators to figure out who in a given situation has the control and is getting all the profit and and try to make sure that they bear an appropriate share of the risk as well. Uh, But of course when you're working as the lawyer for those powerful economic interests, you're actually usually trying to help facilitate the process of externalizing risk. Uh, So I found that to be uh, not the part of the triangle that I really wanted to be working in.
1: So how did you get out?
3: Well, that's another one of those accidental things. Uh, let's just say um, that the firm and I came to a mutual understanding. <laughs> that um, I was clearly listening to different music than was playing mm. in the hall of the, of the firm. Uh, and thank goodness Michigan was the kind of school at the time that was uh, actively involved in, in helping their uh, students go into teaching careers. Mm. And uh, around the time that uh, the firm and I were reaching that understanding, uh, completely independently of that, someone from uh, my law school had reached out to me and said, yeah, we, think, we think you might be a good professor, so we, we want you to come back to the school and meet other professors and kind of figure out how that market works and see what you think. So again, it's another wonderful accident, you know, that people take an interest in other people. Uh, and that's how I got into teaching. Mm-hmm.
1: So how long had you, oh, were you in private practice school? Three years. Three years. So okay. you were still pretty young when you yeah, got it. Yeah, it was.
3: Yeah, it was. But because we have an undergraduate degree and then a law degree, I mm. was um, I must have been maybe close to thirty.
1: So yeah. See, that's quite. Like, I mean, I did a double degree as mm-hmm. well, but we were a lot younger. I think when we finished our law degrees, when yeah. you say Justin. Mm. Mm.
2: Yeah. Because yeah, it was uh, we don't didn't we didn't have the graduate. Entry uh, Mm. process so you went straight from school straight into law school. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in America, you go to you do an undergraduate undergraduate degree first, what three years, yes, yes, four uh, four years there.
3: And then some people take time in between the two, like I did, to to run a pizzeria and run around in the US (laughs) Army. So, yeah, so, yeah.
2: But uh, the statistics show here in Australia for law students, uh, many of them will fight tooth and nail to get into a large commercial corporate. Yes. Firm, mm-hmm. because it's seen as prestigious. I think is one thing, but I think the other, the other thinking is that uh, it would then equip them well for the rest of their career. Yes. So uh, typically, uh, a law graduate will last about two and a half years oh, in wow. one of those larger. Yeah. So basically, what you did, yes, is highly typical yes. of what our students do. Yeah. Uh, so they will you know, do their, you know, boot camp, if you like, for two yes. and a half years yes. on average in a major commercial mm-hmm. law firm and then branch out. Yes. Oh, wow. it, I feel better yeah.
3: hearing that. I'm glad to know
1: that. But even so, you know, only 20% of um, the, the amount of practising lawyers that there are in Australia, only 20% are in firms of greater than 24 partners. Oh. So not, not all of them go to... No big law firms, yeah. and in fact, a lot of them don't really end up there. So it's very interesting that it seems to be, particularly from those better law schools in the States, that most people end up in one of those big law firms. Because how many partners were there at the Oh, there
3: were hundreds had? of partners, and this mm. was in the uh, late 1980s, so yeah. I'm sure there are even more now. Uh, of course, the other factor that unfortunately distinguishes our systems is the high level of debt that our students are graduating mm. with you know, it's routine right now for a a law student to graduate with something like $200,000 worth of debt Mm. just from law school. So if they also had to finance their undergraduate through borrowing, Mm. that's a a reasonable house mortgage by the time they're Mm -hmm. they're starting out their career. So they need those incredibly high salaries just to start to get their debt payments under control. So in terms of being able to entertain alternative career paths, it's a real real barrier for many students.
2: How much... uh universities themselves buying into this game. In other words, not advocating to stop it, yeah. but actually co-conspirators. And how do you feel, morally, being part of all this?
3: You know, I think it's I, I think it's a real problem, and, and I, I don't feel like it's great. I've been part of a committee at the law school that's looking at ways, this is back home at Boston College, looking at ways to uh, help students manage their debt load. Uh, it's a it's a kind of a spiral because the schools are in such a competitive process with each other uh, that no school is very uh, open to reducing their own tuition revenues what they're trying to do is increase their financial aid so that they're working at the other side so keep the keep the tuition bills high but come up with enough uh, through, through through donations through philanthropy uh, come up with enough um, uh, donations that they can afford to offset that from ma- from many students, so they're working it from that end.
2: So, from your religious, ethical, <clears throat> yes. etc., uh, you felt uncomfortable in in a commercial law firm. Yes. Um, how do you do? You feel a discomfort, and how do you? Oh, I'm asking some nasty questions here, <laughs> but you know how do, how yes. do you feel, given your advocacy and, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, um, in that? The context, you, almost a new moral dilemma, is kind of looming yes. up out of nowhere yes. uh, in front of you. How do you kind of deal with that?
3: Well, I, th- I try to be upfront with the students about it. For example, um, I, I recognize that for many of them, their choices are going to be limited by the amount of debt that they have. Uh, but I also talk to them about how to plan a sort of deep, multi-layered career plan. So. Um, if their ultimate goal is to be uh, a human rights lawyer mm-hmm. um, but they're carrying $250,000 of debt, well then we talk about how can you start to build the kind of practice in a large law firm that will create the kind of skills that will then translate into a human rights job in 5 or 10 years. So we sort of take the long view and say let's, let's begin the planning process now uh, and, and have sort of a plan A, plan B, plan C, mm-hmm. and plan D. Uh, such that when you can afford to do it, you're in a position to make that jump. And that's where you see the advantages of the large firms that you mentioned a moment ago, that they do tend to invest in training, uh, they do give you uh, interesting experiences with other very accomplished lawyers, and that all translates well too. So you may not be able to do the kind of public interest Mm -hmm. work right off the bat, but you're starting to plan for that and sort of have your own strategy.
1: But isn't it the problem then that you become too used to the money in one of those big law firms? You get more debt because you get the house in the,
3: you know, expensive
1: suburbs, and whatever, and you never get out of that.
3: That does happen, and I think that's Mm. where you try to stay in touch with the students that Mm. you think um, have a real heart for this work, Mm. Um, and you try to stay in touch with them to help them work through those dilemmas Mm. after they practice. That's one uh, after they graduate. That's one of the things um, our law school particularly emphasizes is that our relationship with them doesn't end the moment that they get their diploma and that it's sort of life ongoing.
1: Isn't that interesting, Justin, because that's certainly not my experience at law school at Sydney. What's that? that they had an interest in us after we left Moscow. <laughs> no, it was goodbye. <laughs> yes. never, never heard from them again. No, except uh, to ask for donations.
2: Yeah, in more recent times, the uh, alumni department in the uh, mm. universities are uh, suddenly our friends again because they think uh, we might donate. some <laughs> very terribly cynical. No, bad.
3: no. I've heard that in other systems I've te- mm-hmm. I teach in Europe as well, a fair amount. And they're facing the same thing, but you, you can't start 15 years mm-hmm. after they leave the university. You can't start trying to make them best friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, it's too late. If you want to start, you have to start with the students that are in school currently and make the kind of investments in them that they will recognize as valuable to their larger mm-hmm. goals and interests. You just can't start 15 years after they graduate.
1: The other interesting thing, I just wanted to go back a little bit more about the moral dilemma because I in Australia was was the recipient of free university education because otherwise I would never have gone to university. One, because, you know, really, really only started in the 70s that women started to go to university because it was free. And also because of my background, it was extremely poor. And I think it made... Like, I don't know if I would have liked a system where I was dependent on somebody's some other person's charity or university's charity to Mm -hmm. allow me to go to university. Mm -hmm. I think that's a real shame in a way because I don't don't know if it would have made me a different lawyer. Yes, yes.
3: Mm. Well, I think part of it's a question of perception. Financial aid is so ubiquitous... Throughout the system, and the students have dealt with it in university already, uh, that there's really there's no real stigma attached to it anymore, at least in the US. Um, it isn't like people point to you and say, well, there goes the scholarship kit, like if you're at some elite <coughs> private school or something like that. It's really more the case that 80% of the students are receiving some kind of financial aid. But, it doesn't really get to the heart of your question, which is, isn't there some way out of that dilemma Mm. where you have to charge $60,000 a year of tuition? Uh, And there you see some disturbing trends because it's also been curious to me that, at least in the United States, there's been a real growth in the number of professional staff. So administrations are getting larger and larger, and all those people need salaries and benefits as well uh, to serve essentially the same number of students. Now, some of it's because finding a job is more difficult. Mm-hmm. So you have more placement people. Some of it is also because there, there is a certain amount of, um, of an uptick in terms of some of the um, psychological, emotional fragility of, of, of younger people. Uh, and so you have to have more administrators who are helping with accommodation requests and working on student support. Uh, And that's a larger social phenomenon that I I don't really understand, but we we see it at the level of the need for more staff to take care of students. But at the end of the day, it's still, to me, as a sort of a traditionalist, it's about uh, a legal text, a student and a professor having a conversation. Mm -hmm. And and that, at the end of the day, is an expensive model of education. It's not really a sort of large lecture hall uh, model. I mean, that happens, mm. but at heart, it's really about trying to support the kind of ratios that will allow a small group of students to sit down with a professor and work through some legal texts in a very in-depth way, and, and that's expensive.
2: Although it is contested space, political space in the U.S., because you've got Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders yeah. who's you know claiming that university should be heavily subsidized or free, yes. so there, yes. does, there does seem to be a bit of a blowback in the Yeah yeah public discourse yeah
3: and I think there needs to be a a, a deeper conversation about it Uh, Mm. I think what would be more attainable than individual schools breaking out of the financial model would be to break out of the rankings trap and I think Mm. that Mm. is uh, an easier challenge but not an easy one and there haven't been any schools that are really taking a decisive action there Uh, because
1: it seems to me that it does seem to be very important in America where you went to law school Yes. Whereas in Australia, it might be important for your first job, but after that, who cares? Yeah, I, mean, uh, I think oh. that's more as it should be. <laughs> 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 Justin yeah. disagrees
2: yes. with that. Uh, <laughs> you know, being in, in the system, uh, there's, I mean, I think it's a global trend. Uh, there's this whole ratings game, mm-hmm. you yes. know, like Channel 7, Channel 10, whatever. <laughs> yes. So there's a university rankings game. Uh, there are about five or six global university rankers, Mm. you know, what's number one, number two, three, four, five, et cetera, et cetera. So so the universities all say, oh, we don't take this seriously. But they do. And Mm. everything is driven on these metrics. So, uh, uh, and it's ironic that in the academy, academy you would expect that evidence was important, Mm -hmm. (laughs) evidence-based... Uh, decision making—it is the law. <laughs> yes. beyond law, you know, science, all the rest yeah. of it—that uh, that we make assessments in a rational, evidence-based way. Yes. But uh, the reliability of these ranking systems mm. is statistically extremely dodgy, to say the, to say the least. Mm. Um, and somehow, a university can go from world's number fifty-one to 30 or to 80, somehow it can jump around in a year. Mm. Somehow the institution doing the same thing pretty much without any radical change can suddenly ascend or descend rapidly in its world rankings. In other words, it's ridiculous. But of course the ranking agencies have to make them change Mm. because otherwise They've got no money. You know, who's yes. going to look at the ranking if it's going to be the same as the year before and the year before and the year before? But if it was it static, it's useless. So yes. they've got to make it dynamic. Uh, and universities will tailor their uh, performance requirements on, on the vice chancellors and all the rest of it around this ranking system that everyone knows is nuts. Mm. But, but is it important? But yes. is it
1: important for a job in the law in Australia... As to what university you went to, after you have your first job.
2: Well, I, if if I can, but I mean I, mean, I can only speak on very limited evidence. Yeah. Uh, one being uh, hearing a talk from a recruiter at one of the major law firms, mm. one of the big commercial ones, uh, and he said that when they because basically they recruit students from the summer clerkships mm. or the winter clerkships. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Uh, so the, quest- the first step is who do they select for the clerkship? Mm. So uh, what he said they did was they more or less break it up pretty evenly, you know, this university with x number of students, this one, this one, more or less kind of equitable. Mm. So that's how they took them in and he said but once they t- you know once the clerkship started they didn't care where you came from Mm -hmm. you know it's Mm -hmm. how you performed over that Mm -hmm. month Mm -hmm. uh, as to whether they'd offer you a job at the end of it so I guess the first filter um, is they probably have a quota system Mm -hmm. informal or informal Mm -hmm. I don't know Uh, it's all within the firm Mm -hmm. each firm will have their own way of doing it but they may have a quota to bring people in but I suspect at the end of the day they Um, will look at you as an individual and they won't really care too much which law school you went
1: to. Mm -hmm. Once you're in. But does it change in the States then? That you, um, once you've had your first job, do they really look to where you've gone to university? Is it still relevant?
3: It's still relevant, Mm. but not as much. I think Mm. especially for that first job and especially if you want a job in a large business Mm. firm because they're very risk averse. And so Mm -hmm. they tend to not hire unless they've had you for a summer clerkship. And they only tend to interview at certain schools. So in that sense, if you're not at one of the schools where the firms send their interview teams, you're sending in a resume by mail with other thousands of people. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the risk aversion of these firms largely drives that kind of very conservative decision making. But after that, it's not so important. Mm -hmm. And outside of that part of the industry, it's not as important either. No. Where it can help is the alumni network and that's where a school like B.C. has very loyal alums. So they will bend over backwards to help the next generation of B.C. students. So in that sense it can help if you have loyal alums. But otherwise, no, this, it's, it's more flexible than... Certainly it's more flexible than a nervous law student will want to believe at the point where they're about to enter the market.
2: Although I heard this story about Justice Scalia, of the, um, who's now deceased, of the yes. U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, who gave a speech to the students at the Washington College of Law? Mm-hmm. One of those, uh, and the students, you know, patiently listened to Justice Scalia, you know, mm. ruminate on whatever he was ruminating on. It. But then it was question time, and of course, Han went up and say, basically, the question was, you know, what are the chances of me getting a clerkship with you yes. or any other of the Supreme Court judges? And Scalia. Uh, despite any other fault, uh, did, did not have the fault of being uh, discreet or um, yes. nuanced or anything like that. He'd tell you, talk it straight. And he said, uh, you do not have a chance of getting a clerkship with me or any other Supreme Court judges. We only take from Yale and Harvard. He said, oh, actually, having said that, I did take someone from some state university in the Midwest. Probably Michigan. Probably Michigan. <laughs> and he said, in fact, he was the best clerk I ever had, but... I still take from Yale and Harvard.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I actually heard that speech too and I thought it was very interesting. And it was just so disappointing in some ways because the kids that are likely to be going to those other universities are the ones likely to be coming from more disadvantaged backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So you're just perpetuating this system of extreme privilege if yes. you've gone to Yale or Harvard. Yes. And I think that's a really sad thing. And I. I when I heard him say that, I was so outraged. Um, because even after having had that experience of having someone who was his best clerk, he wasn't going to go back. And I think the clerk he was talking about is now a judge or something of mm. one of the yeah, districts. Okay. Um, so he did okay yeah. He did very well, yeah. yes. And um, it, they were actually, uh, I was listening to this uh, this on a podcast because they were talking about the the exams that you have to go through Mm -hmm. to get into a law school Mm -hmm. and they were talking about the difference between how people think and that the law schools in america in particular um base their entrance on people who can think very quickly Mm -hmm. whereas when you are doing when you're actually in the practice of law you should be thinking you should be reading very carefully And so you actually want people who take their time you don't actually want people who can just you know fly off the handle and Mm -hmm, make decisions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which i thought was very interesting yes (laughs) so but i wanted to go i just wanted to go because in in australia when you graduate with a law degree you can't practice law unless you've gone and done a practical legal training course it's usually six months Before that, we used to have clerkships as well, where you could just, you didn't have to go to, um, you didn't have to get a law degree, you could Mm -hmm. just do, Mm -hmm. um, you could just become a clerk. So, is the system the same in America?
3: No, it's um, once you graduate and you are, and you take the bar exam in a jurisdiction Mm -hmm. and you pass the bar exam, you can practice law immediately. Mm -hmm. Now, the assumption is, or has been, that during your summer clerkships, uh, you would gain some of the skills you might need to be able to actually do something. Uh, I think, and, and then the second assumption was once you had a job, you would get more training on the job. Well, that's, those are both mm-hmm. under fire. So in fact, schools have been much more focused now on skills training while you're in law school. Uh, so the, the average law student right now is graduating much more practice-ready is the, firm that, mm. the phrase that's using yes, than they might have been when I graduated. But that's not entirely driven by, uh, I think, a, a pedagogical commitment to training the students to be practice-ready. It's also driven by the change in the economics of law practice. It used to be a lot of firms could afford to train their students for one or two years because the clients would be willing to essentially subsidize that. Uh, you'd put a couple of juniors on a matter, and they would just be learning. and The lawyers might discount the bill pretty heavily, but some of that time would get billed to the client. Well, as the market's gotten more competitive, a lot of big clients have said, we're not willing to have any young people on our matters anymore at all. So, in, in fact, it turned out that um, they were not economically able to subsidize the training of a lot of their recent graduates, and the partners were unwilling to earn less money in order to do that. Mm. So then the pressure grew on the law schools to step in. So it's made being a law professor, I think, a bit more complex because you only have six semesters in the U.S. and you've got to teach them everything they need to know, especially about the culture of law and the way of thinking that is important for law. And then you have to do a lot of skills training and other things as well. It's, it's pretty packed six semesters.
1: So it's it's three, three years, yeah. yeah, three years for a law degree, three years. Yeah, it doesn't give you a lot of time. No. So what do you think the best thing what do you think the best thing is that your law degree gave you? Yeah, that's
3: a great question. Um, I, I think it, it gave me some confidence that I could follow my curiosity into a lot of different areas and I'd be able to sort myself out that, uh, you know, that sense of, um, you know, I can read my way, think my way into a lot of situations that I have no experience or training in. Uh, so. And, and that's a really valuable thing because for any lawyer, your career changes, what, six or seven times? Uh, um,
1: I've been at the same job for 25 years. Oh, wow, okay.
3: So, so, but in the U.S., the expectation is now, like my son is, uh, is, I think, three years out and he's been in three different firms. Wow. Yeah, and that's maybe a little more unusual. Part of it is the firms have changed names while he's still working there. But uh, in terms of adapting and flexibility and having to imagine yourself into a different set of relationships mm. or areas of law, uh, it's, it's understood now or it's expected mm. that that's going to be the case. So I think that ability, you know, there's a sort of a, there's a colloquial saying in the U.S. that if anybody calls you and says, uh, do you know anything about X law? The answer is supposed to be yes. And then you hang up the phone and then you figure it out. Uh, and I think feeling that some level of comfort that you can do that. Mm. Uh, is a valuable thing.
1: I think that comes with experience. Uh, well, I I think it comes with complete inexperience, where you think you know everything. Yes. Or you know, you get to yes. a certain age and you think, yes, I can work this out. Yes. You know, even if I'm not an expert in it. Yes. And I think it is true that that's one thing that a law degree can give you—that sort of critical thinking. I um, would I
3: would add also just two things if I could to that. I think one is. Um, it sounds a little bit um, old fashioned to talk about anything like loving the law, mm. but I, I was fortunate to have teachers that were very upfront about their respect and their, uh, their love for the law and what the law could do. Mm. And that's a wonderful thing to have when you're a student because then you can carry that forward into a lot of situations.
2: My experience was a little bit different. I mean, I um, did my undergraduate uh, in Australia, obviously, mm. uh, way back, a long time ago, free university days. Um, and basically, my recollection of the law degree was it was pretty dry. Mm. was pretty uninteresting. Um, it was just doctrinal black and white. And a little law reform was tacked on at the end as a bit of yes. an afterthought. This mm-hmm. is how you can reform the law. That was about it. Mm. Um, and then I went into practice for five years. And then I did a, a master's in Osgoode uh, in Toronto in Canada. Mm-hmm. And that was... A revelation to me. I did not know that the law could be interesting, and mm. uh, I was it because there was they were challenging things. Um, it was exciting. Legal philosophy came into it, uh, and it was just I. It just I just didn't know that's a, that's what the law was mm. or could it ever be. Uh, so that uh, that was I guess the transformation for me yeah. in terms of. Uh, law's possibilities but I didn't get that as an undergraduate here
1: mm. I didn't get it either no. but it's interesting I did a bit of tutoring one of the universities in Brisbane probably 10 years ago and it had changed again the law students weren't interested in anything that had to do with law reform they just wanted to get their degree yes, because they were paying a lot of money for it yes. Yes. and so all the passion you know That is true. You know, I love the law too. It was, Mm -hmm. it's a passionate thing for me. Yes, exactly. But but now um, I felt those students had already were passionless Mm -hmm. and were, you know, quite driven by the fact that they were paying a lot of money for their degree and that they wanted to get value for money, and that meant they wanted to get good marks so that they could get a good job. Yes. in a big law firm. Yes, no, mm. that was um, the, the big conspiratorial
2: character. part of me. It sees that this is no accident, yes. mm-hmm. that uh, the universities were seen in the 60s, 70s, and maybe somewhere into the 80s mm-hmm. as being places of dissent, mm. uh, and uh, particularly during the Vietnam War, of rebellion almost. Mm. And so I think there's been a relatively concerted effort to tame universities and to bring them into line and to make them places that are less inclined to critique. Uh, and I think they've been wildly successful. I think that uh, uh, it's very difficult to um, to undermine people's assumptions, to question what do you mean by fair, just? Is this law fair? Um, uh should we, uh, can we be participants in the, pace, in, in, in the role of changing things and making mm-hmm. them better? Those questions are really repressed quite, quite strongly. Uh, and we're going back to almost the education I had way back, mm-hmm. uh, in which it's just um, relatively tame. and. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I
3: think that's why I think the, in the U.S. I believe very much in the institution of the tenured professor. Mm. which is also under fire and you know, mm-hmm. not all of our colleagues have been good stewards of, of that freedom. But I think in principle it's very hard to, to, to get rid of a professor or to discipline mm. what they do in the classroom and so we have a position from which to resist a lot of those things and to try to wake people up and encourage them and motivate them. Mm-hmm. I like to think it's one reason I keep getting invited back to Australia is to try to keep bringing some of that into the classes that I teach here. Mm-hmm. Excellent.
1: Um, and what what practical advice would you give someone who's looking to have a career in academia? Like, how would you see them today getting into academia in particularly? Well, in your case, in the States.
3: Well, I'd say, um, and I can only speak directly about the, how mm. it works in the US. I'm, it's different oh, yeah. in uh, Australia and other countries. But I think the most important thing you can do is um, form honest and strong relationships with your professors in law school uh, and be upfront about your academic interests in the law and don't be afraid of that uh, and start to develop that relationship with the people who are already within the Mm -hmm. community because they're going to be the number one resource for helping you get in there as well Uh, and then i think but i would also say for any law student whether they want to be an academic or not i think if you really follow what you love in the law uh, you are more likely to find your way. If you try to be very canny and strategic, uh, I don't think you're going to be necessarily as successful and you won't be any happier. But mm. I think if you, if you follow, if you really honestly and openly follow the, your curiosity and passion for any part of law you might be interested in, you're going to attract help and resources along the way and you're going to be a much happier lawyer anyway. So yeah. I'd say don't, don't be so strategic that you miss your opportunity for happiness.
2: Actually, I was reading a quote today, Mark Twain, who (laughs) said, if you work out uh, a job in which you're doing what you really want to do and what you really enjoy, you'll never have to work another day in your life. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. I feel the same way. A lot of my colleagues
3: feel that way. Yeah. Now, now marking exams is another matter. I have a colleague who says that he works his entire job for free and all of his salary goes to marking
1: exams. (laughs) Or you get the tutors to do marking exams. we we don't have that in the U.S. yet. Oh, see, that's interesting. Actually, that was one other question that I was going to ask you was that you spoke about small classes, so you do have a lot smaller classes. When you say small classes, how many people do you usually... So we have times? a
3: mixture. So um, I teach entirely in the second and third year. Mm-hmm. And I have mm-hmm. anywhere from 15 to 25 to 30 students. Yeah, That's, that's an average class for me. Um, but my colleagues in the first year, they're, t- they're teaching contracts towards criminal law. They routinely have sections of up to 100, 110 students in their class. That's a challenge.
1: Whereas I think in Australia, the classes are much bigger. Yeah. in Torquay mm-hmm.
2: does... Foundation subjects, Mm -hmm. contract uh, Mm -hmm. torts, etc., criminal law. um, I mean, it varies from university to university, but typically at least 300 in Mm -hmm. a class. Uh, It would maybe split between, uh, you might have two lecturers, you know, stream A, stream B, Mm -hmm. so each lecturer may have a class of, say, 150 or so. Mm Uh, but in some cases, the numbers are higher than that
1: again. And I think that's why it's actually harder to justify the fees here in Australia than at least you can see, if you have these small classes, why a year's tuition might be that expensive. Yes, although yes. some mm.
2: universities are offering both, either one or both of an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree, which they call a JD, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in in other words, it follows the US Mm -hmm. model, um, which costs three times more than the undergraduate degree. So Mm -hmm. it's getting up to US prices. Yeah, yeah. -hmm. So it's that uh, the graduate JD program in a number of universities would be pretty close, if not indistinguishable, from the US, except for the fact that you have... um, uh, fee help um, processes about here, that, which you don't have in the US. Yes.
1: Professor, I was just going to ask you, do you have any regrets about any opportunities that you might have missed and that you'd wish you'd taken up in your career? No. Oh, that's
3: also a great question. Mm. I, I wish that I had uh, clerked for a judge. I think it would have been a very interesting mm. experience. But at the time uh, when I graduated from law school, uh, we already had a, a family. And I thought I was pretty clear that I wanted to be a sort of business lawyer slash pillar of the community in, in Portland, Oregon for the rest of my life. So it didn't make sense to break that up for a year or two and to do a clerkship. But I think that would have been a very interesting experience to work closely with the judge and see the way that, that, that legal decisions are made and the way legal opinions are drafted. I, I would have. Uh, enjoy doing that.
1: And one other question, and this is just a general question. So what do you do in your spare time, if there is any spare time? Yeah. <laughs> um,
3: so um, that's a great question, too. Um, some of what I do is not surprising for, for any uh, law Is I like to read other things that relate to law, but aren't necessarily mm-hmm. what I read every day for work. Um, Uh, My wife's a writer, so I get to dive into the world of creative writing through what she does. Um, And I also love to cook and and hang out with my grown children as much as they will let me. So that pretty (laughs) much fills up a lot of the time.
1: Thank you um, so much, Professor Garcia, for um, speaking to me today. And thank you, Justin, for helping me out. I really appreciate it. Maybe one day we can do an interview together and hear a bit more about you. Thank you. you. I
3: can ask you the hard questions. (laughs) Actually, maybe we should should bring Frank back (laughs) and we'll do the
1: same (laughs) thing to you.
2: He uh, he could be cruel. (laughs)
0: Thank you for joining us on Lunching with Lawyers. If you enjoyed this episode or have questions or comments for our guests, head to the show notes for this episode and click on the contact links below. If you have suggestions, ideas or questions or would even like to be part of this series, head to the Contact Us page on our website www.lorettacreate.com.